And welcome back to the Middling Along podcast. I'm very excited to have back this time Dr. Beth Thomas, who's not only a GP and a BMS accredited menopause specialist, but as any of you who might have been uh, listening to the last time we had Beth on the podcast, she's also my sister-in-law, but she's also now working uh, some of the time alongside me at Managing the Menopause as our clinical lead. So if you haven't checked out our website, that's managingthemenopause.com and we work with companies and uh, sometimes individuals on a one-to-one basis and do coaching. So yeah, please do go and have a look at our website and see what we are up to. Welcome back to the podcast, Beth. Thank you very much for having me back. It's really nice to be here. So slightly belatedly, because the conference, the British Menopause Society conference actually happened at the end of June, we thought it would be really uh, helpful to do a, a roundup because you were there sort of both in person and online, I think it was across two days, about the, the sort of research that was presented, kind of new developments, new things that are coming to light in the menopause space, um, and maybe also talking about uh, some of the new types of treatment that are going to be on the horizon here in the UK. Um, there's one that's already available in the US if we've got US listeners, but but isn't currently available here. So do you, you were going to kick off um, and talk about a bit about cancer, which is something that we always get lots of questions about at the, the sort of the sessions that we run. That's right. And and that was there was quite a lot of emphasis about um, cancer and how it fits in with menopause care and how it fits in with HRT at the conference this time. So one of the things that we talked about and had some specialist uh, oncologists in was talking about breast cancer and obviously talking about the fact that we know that there's an association between um, HRT and a small increased risk of breast cancer. I, I think that's that's well known. We also know that that's very much less than um, the increased risk of being overweight, for example, and, and the risk that causes for breast cancer. We, we also talked about, which maybe some of your listeners aren't aware for, that when they've looked at the studies for breast cancer, it's very much only the combination HRT that mm. seems to have that association, that when you're on the estrogen and progesterone, and that women that are just on estrogen because they've had a hysterectomy, actually there's no um, associated increased risk. And also that the risk of breast cancer only really starts kicking in after the age of 51. So if you're on HRT because you're going through an early menopause, then there is no increased risk if you're starting HRT in your 40s. It only kicks in sort of after when normally your your estrogen levels would drop off. And, and, And really they said, look, where we are with the breast cancer risk is where we are. That There's been two or three big studies in the last 30 years. There aren't going to be any more big studies, actually, that it's really not worth it in terms of Far, the far, big farmers is money or it's very hard to do anyway isn't it across it's that really long-term studies yes yeah. so, so so the evidence that we've got is all that we're going to get and and really it's about mm. counseling women very carefully and having a really individualized look at what their risk factors are and making sure they're on the right HRT for them so that that was one thing that came out they they talked a little bit about the new medications that are on the horizon for really for women that have got breast cancer that are having menopause symptoms. Mm. So if you've got a history of breast cancer, particularly if it's estrogen receptive breast cancer, which about 80% of breast cancers are, then ideally we wouldn't 
recommend that women go on HRT. Obviously, you've got a you've got a cancer that we know is being driven by hormones, so it sort of doesn't make sense yeah. to then give you those hormones. There are exceptional cases where women that do end up going on HRT because really they've tried all the other non-hormonal options and really their quality of life is is so poor that that but that would be a decision that would be made very much with the breast surgeon and menopause specialist and the oncologist and the patient. But the really exciting news is there is a new drug on the market um, called Vioza or this proper name, which I always struggle to pronounce. I know, me Fez, too. Fezolinatant. Fezolinatant. <laughs> Fezolinatant. Um, we'll all yes. be saying it eventually. Yeah, that's right. And this is a non-hormonal medication that's licensed for treating the vasomotor symptoms. So the hot flushes and sweats associated with menopause. It's been around for about five or six years. It works on, it's a, it's, a, it's a neurokinin 3 receptor antagonist. So it works directly on the hypothalamus, which is the bit of the brain that controls thermoregulation and it sort of blocks the, 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 the chemicals that, that do that and it moderates the thermoregulatory center. It's had approval in the USA, so it's available there. It's not yet approved in the UK or in Europe. It's um, NICE, which is our big regulatory body in the UK, is looking at it. It, we were going to get a decision in January, but I think as far as I know, that's been pushed back to July of next year oh, now. Okay. It's definitely safe. I think that the, the, the real concern is the cost. Mm. So I think that it costs, and this is what they say in the conference, about £540 per patient per month to be on it. Okay, so that's expensive compared to HRT, for example. That is expensive, <laughs> yeah. So we will wait and see NICE's decision, but there are things out there that are, mm. that, that are going to be coming along. And somebody would be potentially be able to take that and then presumably would be what reviewed annually to sort of see if they needed to stay. Yes, um, I would imagine so. I mean, I would imagine at that cost, it won't be something that you can just get from your GPs. It will probably Mm. come from a breast oncologist. They will be the ones that will need to prescribe it. I mean, there there are, and we've talked about this before, there are other medications that women that have had breast cancer can have, non-hormonal medications such as venlafaxine and oxybutynin. So if anyone's listening that has been through breast cancer and has been told they can't have HRT and is struggling, please do go back to your GP and, and there are options that they can try. Yeah. And there's a fantastic podcast actually called Menopause and Cancer. Um, and that they do sort of deep dive into into yeah. a lot of um, this. So that's another good yeah. recommendation. And you said there, were, there was also quite a lot of discussion around endometrial cancer. So this was probably the big take home message, I would say, from the conference. So endometrial or womb cancer is has hugely increased in the last decade in the UK. And and the main reason for that is actually the increase in obesity in our society, because obesity is the the biggest risk factor for womb cancer. But what we're also worried about is getting the balance right of HRT for women. So what we know when we give HRT, the estrogen is what treats the symptoms and the progesterone is that protective hormone that keeps the lining of the womb thin. um, Because if you get thickening of the lining of the womb, that can potentially go on to become uh, womb cancer. And we, the studies have shown that women that are on what we call separate component HRT, so they're taking both estrogen and progesterone in separate ways, and that's, that's body identical. So our gold standard now is estrogen through the skin and then that lovely Eutrogestan tablet. That's, but what we are finding is that your, your risk of womb cancer taking it that way is actually increased. Mm. And there's many reasons for that. Probably the biggest reason is that there have been shortages of Eutrogestan, as we know, 
over the last year and that's probably going to go on into next year and so we are worried that there are women that are not taking their progesterone component because they can't right. get hold of it or and they're actually, rationing it or something or they're rationing it and they're thinking well actually I feel great just taking my patch I mean the, the tablet doesn't make any difference And the other big concern is that we're seeing women going up on higher doses of estrogen and and they need that to control their symptoms. But actually, they often need a increase of their progesterone dose as well. And that's not always happening. So if you're on a hundred patch or a four squirt of your gel, you really should be on double dose progesterone. And I think that would be four tablets rather than two. two. Yes. So if you're taking two tablets Mm. two weeks on two weeks off you would go up to three tablets and if you're taking one tablet all the way through the month we would recommend that you go up to two tablets but that's something that really you should be talking to your GP about and your GP should be putting that dose up but I think that message has not necessarily filtered down to everyone so so yes the biggest risk about for endometrial cancer is is obesity and, and that's what's driven this huge increase but there is this concern that we're not always getting the balance right. And if we don't always get the balance right in HRT between the hormones, even if it doesn't cause cancer, which obviously most of the time it wouldn't, it does often cause a bit of bleeding. And that brings with it a lot of anxiety, maybe some unnecessary investigations. And so, you know, we really try and trying to look at how we can get that balance right. And I, I felt coming away from the conference that there was a there was a feeling that going back to those combination products mm-hmm. was actually not a bad thought. Whilst we really like body identical HRT, actually a patch that's got both the hormones in it, you know then that the in woman the is right getting the right ratio, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it shouldn't be discounted as an option at all. Okay, interesting. I mean, it's always about balancing risk, isn't it? And, and it's an individualised discussion. But I guess if someone's listening and they're suddenly thinking, I'm not sure about that kind of progesterone and thing they should go back and see their GP or yeah and absolutely and I think the big message actually is if you can't get hold of the progesterone you think does it really matter yes it does yeah it really does okay let's move on then and talk about um next topic which is nutrition and our microbiome we're hearing a lot more uh, about our sort of gut or that our friendly uh, gut bacteria these days but why is it so important for menopause yeah this was really fascinating So we had a really good talk from a nutritionist, first of all, about um, what happens with our weight in the menopause. And so he said that the average woman gains about 10 kilos during their perimenopausal year. And the other really important thing is where you gain your weight changes, which I'm sure women listening are aware of, that rather than having it around your hips and bottom, suddenly for the first time ever, it's going around your stomach and you're getting that sort of protruding tummy. And that's important because that fat around your tummy also corresponds with fat building up around your liver and your heart. And that's got those associated long term risks. Sort of depressingly, there was no quick fix or <laughs> or, or golden answer to what do we do about this? There's, there's, the evidence is there's no one diet that is better than any other diet. So for all of those that think maybe intermittent fasting, which is the latest thing, is, is the thing that's going to solve their problems. There's no evidence for that possibly the Mediterranean diet has got some other health benefits. For me, his take-home tips were, look, think about what you're putting in your mouth. Really, it should be three meals, one snack, and that should be it. Think about your plate size, have your smaller Mm -hmm. plate. He talked about the rule of 20. So chew everything 20 times, 
Don't put anything in your mouth bigger than a 20p piece and try and take at least 20 minutes to eat a meal because it takes 20 minutes for your brain to get those satiety signals from your stomach to say your stomach is full. So we eat very quickly in this country. Mm. And I think what happens is we then overeat and don't recognize that we're, we're full. So, so that was him. And he talked about the importance of the three types of exercise now. So it's not just cardiovascular, it's also strength and it's also restorative, which is the sort of yoga and Pilates. So in an ideal world, we'd all be doing a bit yeah. of all three. <laughs> With all of this spare time that we've got. I know. But we I can know. try, we can try and get the balance. We can try. And I think it's about putting it into your daily life. I think it's about making sure you try and take the stairs rather than the lift. I think about putting a standing desk in at work, about if you're a dog walker, getting some little hand weights to wear when you're walking as well. So you're not going to suddenly become a gym bunny. Most women, we haven't got the time to. So try putting them in. <laughs> and then we had a really good talk about from a, a professor, Jack Gilbert from San Diego, uh, talking about the microbiomes and how what we eat affects the different type of bacteria in the gut. And he was saying that high saturated fat food increases the abundance of a type of bacteria called facilitative anaerobes, which are less good about breaking down adipose tissue so tend to be more kind of fat friendly Mm. bacteria he also said and I wrote this down at the time because I was so fascinated he was saying that your biomass in your body of back in your gut of bacteria when you go to bed is about 0.5 grams by lunchtime, it's 1.3 kilograms. So he was talking about how what? quickly <laughs> bacteria replicate in the gut. So you put some food in and they, you know, they massively replicate. And so he was saying the first bit of food you put in your body in the morning is really, really important because it wow. influences the type of microbiome you're going to have in the gut that day. I mean, some of this went over my head, but he also talked about that they are going there are there are toilets in development that will sense your current microbiome so you do your morning ablutions it will take a sample <laughs> of your stools and oh it will then goodness. tell you that you are high in lactobacilli or low in the e coli and actually what you then need to eat that day to try and get your gut that microbiome sounds like something out of science fiction but it yeah, is I, well, I well believe it, <laughs> it is coming. but he talked a lot about how the fact that the loss of estrogen also acts directly on the gut to affect it increases the number of protobacteria and it changes the sort of gut bacteria makeup and again makes it much more likely that you're going to have localized inflammation and and Mm. then that inflammation has effects on the rest of your body and there's some evidence that hrt reduces that unhelpful protobacteria that we get in our gut so definitely estrogen has effect on our gut microbiome but Mm. probably more important than that I would say it was for the first thing you put in your mouth in the day. So I was all getting into missing my breakfast, getting to 11 o'clock and having a chocolate hobnob. Well, in those days, I've gone for me now. <laughs> I'm not, no, I'm not Just doing that anti, anymore. Just the anti, what is 16-8 rule or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, interesting. And and I was just thinking about microbiome as well, because the that sort of, again, with the drop in estrogen, like the pH in the vagina changes. So your vaginal microbiome also changes, which is why... People are more yeah. prone to, to infection. So, yeah. yeah, it's all about the uh, microbiome. I would say microbiomes is going to be the next big thing for us over the next 10 mm. years. So we're seeing already that, that personalised medicine personalized, kind of targeted. Yeah. There's some evidence that your gut microbiome has an effect, is a, linked with autism spectrum disorder, that when people have had 
um, fecal transplants, which we sometimes do for gut conditions that they um, reported some changes in their personality. I mean, there's a massive link between your gut health mm. and your brain health. And that is, yeah, this that's going to be huge. Let's touch a little bit on uh, the next topic, which was the sort of ethnic disparities in terms of both how people experience menopause, but sort of menopause care as well. Yes, and we had a really good talk about this. And as you say, there's two two real evidence, two real prongs to this. One is that we know in the UK that there is a barrier to good menopause care for some um, different ethnicities. And we also know that most of the media portrayal around menopause, the posters, the things we see on TV are, are, are white women, aren't they? And, and that really needs to change. There is a lot of cultural and personal barriers to accessing menopause care among certain ethnicities may just be as simple as health literacy but but often they said that 78 percent of uh women from a pakistani background actually don't know about the menopause that, that it's not sort of talked about in that culture most of the resources in this country are, are in english and then they talked a lot about how menopause prevents presents quite differently in different ethnicities and also the age it presents that so in caucasian women the average age of menopause is 51 but in, in Indian women, it's 46 years old and it's even lower in, in South Asian women. And they talked about the difference in how menopause presents. So Afro-Caribbean women tend to have more vasomotor symptoms and so more of the flushes mm-hmm. and often have a longer period of menopausal symptoms and have worsening weight gain. But it doesn't seem to affect their sexual function as much. Whereas South Asian women tend to have fewer vasomotor symptoms. And that might be put down to the fact that they tend to have a diet that's very high in soy and those lovely isoflavins that we know have some estrogen containing properties. But but they actually tend to have a, a, a larger decline in sexual function and a worse decline in their joint, joint pains mm. um, compared to Caucasian women. The other group that we do need to be concerned about is is South Asian women, because we know that if you've got a South Asian ethnicity, your risk of developing diabetes is is increased compared to a Caucasian person. And we know, as we've talked about on this podcast before, about that link with worsening cardiovascular risk when you go through Mm. the menopause, that loss of estrogen has on our heart health. So in South Asian women, they've already got that sort of background increased genetic risk because of their ethnicity that's a population that really we would like to really kind of reach out to and, and talk to them about the benefits of HRT so lots I think there that needs to be worked on I think there's still a, a, a concept a preconception and it's probably true that that menopause is something that if you're a rich white educated woman you know you can tend to access help but if you're not in that particular socioeconomic group or demographic, then it can be more difficult. As the, the 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 sort of the rates of of take up of HRT are much much lower, aren't they? Yeah, and I think you know we you and I Emma were in a bit of a bubble. Obviously, we talk about menopause mm. a lot, and it feels to us that even we you know talk about knows about HRT and has made a choice about whether they want to go in or not. But actually, across the UK, of perimenopausal women, only fourteen percent are on HRT. Now, I can't believe that that's because eighty six percent have decided not to take it. I suspect it's because there's a big proportion of that group haven't asked for it or haven't been offered it or isn't that conversation's never been had with them so you talked a little bit about um about Vioza um but I think again one of the questions that often comes up in in sessions is around uh you know what are my options if I'm not if I don't want to take HRT or I can't take HRT 
Yeah, and there was a really good section on um, alter- non-hormonal options and alternative options that you can use. Then I think the bottom line is that there haven't been that many studies because, again, there's not that much money in it for Big Farm to do. There are some new nice guidelines coming out next year on non-hormonal options um, for menopause symptoms, so we will look out for those. About 90 to 95% of women will have tried some over-the-counter supplements for their perimenopausal symptoms. So we all tried something. Mm. And it's big business. (laughs) It is big business. Bottom line is there's really good evidence for lifestyle changes. So there's good evidence for losing weight, stopping smoking, increasing your exercise in terms of improving your menopause symptoms, reducing caffeine and reducing alcohol are really important things to do. Is good evidence for uh, talking therapy, so cognitive behavioural therapy. That's got really good evidence for helping with menopausal symptoms. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've talked about it before. Mm. Dr. Myra Hunter is the sort of, is the lead in this. A psychologist has written a couple of books about how to manage menopause symptoms with CBT that you can get anywhere, I think. If then she went through some specific ones. So for bladder and cystitis symptoms, there's quite good evidence for a herbal supplement called D-Manose, M-A-N-N-O-S-E. And I recommend that to a lot of patients, men and women, that are getting some mm. kind of irritated cystitis symptoms. And also for hyaluronic acid, apparently yeah. that works for there. Uh, we know about vitamin D and calcium. That's the one supplement I take is vitamin D. Um, and that's about our bone health and reducing the risk of getting fractures. There is some evidence for vitamin E for helping with vasomotor symptoms. So that's that's one that possibly is worth trying to take. There's really good evidence for relaxation therapy. So yoga, Pilates, mindfulness, um, acupuncture, that's all got quite good evidence behind it. And then going through the sort of specific ones that you can buy over the counter, I would say the bottom line is there's a strong placebo effect. There's not really massively good evidence for any of them. Wild yam has no benefit at all. Uh, Black cohosh possibly can have a bit of effect, but it's not advised in women that have had a history of breast cancer. St. John's wort definitely does have a beneficial effect on mood symptoms. Ginkgo biloba, is that how you pronounce it? That's supposed to have some beneficial effect on brain fog. And the other one she talked about was Agnes Castor. Possibly there's been a recent study that's shown some benefit for that. So they've all got some risk associated with them. We don't really have that many great studies. Um, but, you know, most women will have tried something at some point, but probably none of them are brilliant I think was the bottom line I I think there's a little bit of concern about Chinese medicines as well because there's really no studies about those and they could be quite potent I mean and there's there's always going to be somebody who's like oh I tried this and and it made a massive difference for me and you know whatever it is there will always be somebody who's had a life-changing kind of result and that's that's absolutely fine I think my my takeaway point would be you know don't be disheartened if it doesn't make a big difference for you because probably the evidence is that there's that it's minimal the benefits you get from them yeah spend your money on vitamin d vitamin d (laughs) and nothing replaces exercise stopping those cigarettes and reducing that alcohol and all, all of those things as well feed into that reduced risk of cardiovascular disease and obviously that's been the sort of the theme for uh, world menopause day this year but you were saying when we were talking offline you know you were talking about some 
really interesting things that kind of contribute to elevated cardiovascular disease risk. So can you talk a bit about that? This is really interesting. And there was a talk by a doctor called and Professor Angela Mass, who is a cardiologist who really specialises in women's cardiovascular disease. And she was saying that women present quite differently to men with cardiovascular disease, that they tend to get spasm of the arteries as opposed to blockage of the arteries. So often they will have normal angiograms. That's the test we do to look at whether an artery is blocked, but that doesn't mean that there isn't problems going on. And she was saying that there's a lot of female specific risk factors for heart disease that don't really get discussed in the same way that smoking does. Mm. So anything that causes general inflammation in the body will increase your risk of heart disease. So things like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, MS, thyroid disease, which all tend to affect women much more than men, have actually got quite quite an increased risk of cardiovascular disease associated with them. She also talked about female-only conditions, so preeclampsia, so that's high blood pressure in pregnancy. That is hugely associated with um, developing high blood pressure in later life. So if you've had preeclampsia, it's really important that you get your blood pressure checked once a year, I would say, because the chances are it's going to go up at some point. And also she was talking about things like gestational diabetes. So women that have had diabetes in pregnancy, again, really high risk of going on to get diabetes in later life. And actually we know now should be having their sugar levels checked at their GP surgery once a year. But interestingly, also endometriosis. She was saying that there's, there's the systemic inflammation. So endometriosis is an inflammatory condition, but that inflammation, those all those inflammatory um, cytokines yeah. and cells there, they, they go all around the body and, and they cause immune dysfunction. And they, there is a link with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease with endometriosis. There's a, there's a link between recurrent miscarriage and increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this, she was saying, look, we need to raise awareness of female. Yeah. Only we don't want to scare people, but it's helpful information to be aware of because you know, we all know our own bodies best of anyone. Absolutely. And I'm not scaring anyone, but I'm saying, look, if you've had those conditions, then it would be sensible to think about having your blood pressure checked every now and again. And actually, again, the things that we know that are really important to keep your blood pressure down are being a normal weight and and, and having a diet that's not too high in salt and keeping your alcohol down. So again, just another reason to try and really look at tackling your lifestyle. And as we've talked about before, Emma, we know that that that, that risk, that estrogen is protective against heart disease. So when we go through the menopause mm-hmm. and our estrogen falls off, that our risk of heart disease does increase and we start catching up with the men. And so again, we talked about this before, that I, I think the menopause, for all its challenges, can also be seen as a real opportunity to say, okay, this is it. What can I do really? I want to be fit and healthy into my 70s and 80s. You know, we don't yeah. know what's going to happen. It is to literally anybody. our midlife MOT, isn't it? It's absolutely. like, check, check for the warning lights. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, you can, you can put in changes at 50 that will have a really, really important impact on you long term. We've got another 35 years of our life to go. Mm. That's a long time. Well, at least, it? hopefully. And, and actually, one of, so one of those things, I think, again, that makes a really, really big difference, and I think a lot of the time that's underestimated, is sleep. And it's something that so many of us struggle with in one, some way, shape or form. And it, and it just has such a big kind of knock-on 
impact so many um, kind of areas of life. But yeah, t- tell us about the the sleep research that. Yeah, there was a lot of there were a lot of pens at the ready for the sleep talk that we had. <laughs> I think we were all desperate <laughs> to be told what we needed to do and to improve our sleep. And it was a doctor called Dr. Hadine Joff, who was an expert in menopause and sleep. So the first thing she sort of pointed out was, well, what what is insomnia? Because a lot of people come in and say they've got insomnia and actually they don't. She said, so it's having disturbed sleep for more than 50% of nights for at least three months and it resulting in daytime dysfunction. Mm. And it's about 10% of the population suffer with chronic insomnia. So that's a lot of people, wow. isn't it? That's a lot yeah. of tired, grumpy people. Yeah. However, she also said it's normal to take up to 20 minutes to get to sleep. So I think don't panic if you feel you're lying there for ages. Obviously, all the usual sleep hygiene things, don't look at the clock, mm. make sure your room's the right temperature, make sure you've wound down before. But what she what really resonated with me, she was saying that the evidence is that the more important thing about sleep is not how long it takes you to get to sleep, but what she calls wazo, wake after sleep onset. So how often you wake up in the night and how disturbed your night's sleep is. And this is something that I see all the time with women going through menopause is they say, I get to sleep okay, but I wake at two because I'm hot, I need Mm. the loo, my mind's racing, and then I wake at four and then I can't get back to sleep about that. And I think one of the problems is that when you've got disturbed night sleeps, you're not getting into that restorative stage four sleep, that really deep sleep. You're kind of constantly in those lighter sleeps. And often if if you're having sweats in the night, you're you're waking up and then not remembering that you're waking up you're waking up because you're, you're hot and and you know we all know that that's a huge problem in the menopause is fatigue isn't it the next day mm. but also sleep is so important for our long-term health isn't it that that's we we know that it's important for keeping inflammation down and our effect on our heart and all the rest of it so in terms of what you can do to help insomnia she said definitely estrogen's got some benefit CBT is really effective, actually. That was a good message that came out of it. And there's a great app that I know in Surrey, where I practice, that NHS patients can access called Sleepio app. I think anyone can access it, but you, but I know in large parts of the country it's available on the NHS. Yeah. I know we had, we had Zoe, Dr. Zoe Shadell, who was talking about CBT and Sleepio and how good, yeah. Yeah. good that is. So even if yeah. you can't access it through your GP, presumably it's worth, yeah. it's, it's, not, worth it's not hugely I don't think it's hugely costly. And I think that gives you a very specific recommendations of what to do to try and improve your sleep. Actually, interesting, no benefit from exercise to help with, with sleep if it's done too late at night. Mm. And she suggested that some antidepressants also actually do help with sleep. Yeah, so it doesn't matter about your total hours. It's about whether or not your sleep is interrupted. So you can be, if you're just sleeping five hours a night, you're probably fine if you're going to bed at 11 and waking up at four and sleeping through. But if you're going to bed at 10 and waking up at seven, but but having three wakes in that night, you're probably not getting a great night's sleep. And you might not necessarily, as you said, you might not necessarily be aware that you're kind of, got all of those little micro wakings but you'll still feel uh, not feel refreshed the next day absolutely yeah that's right and so again think about another reason to maybe think about hrt but i think sleep hygiene relaxation techniques if you're why are you waking you're waking because you need the loo that can something can be done about or you're waking because you're flushing and sweating Mm. think about doing something interesting reading something about your kind of cortisol levels as well so people with that kind of chronic levels of stress your sort of your cortisol levels are building up earlier so it's it's that kind of gradual build-up of cortisol that wakes us up naturally so if that is kind of skewed and it's happening 
because you've kind of got higher elevated levels of cortisol anyway yeah. does that make sense that yeah that makes your, sense it's kind of pushing your your wake-up time earlier yeah. And then it's harder yeah. to get back to sleep because you've got the, the kind of that elevated cortisol that your yeah. body is going, wake up, wake up, time to go and do all the things. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Melatonin has got good evidence. It's a real, it's really frustrating that melatonin is so mm. difficult to get hold of in this country. Obviously, it's available to buy in lots of other countries, but you can get it on prescription if you're over 55 in this country. So oh. something to think about if you're suffering with insomnia and you're over 55, you can talk to your GP yeah. about a trial of melatonin. And the alcohol, I think, I find is a big one for me. That the the days, if I do drink, probably more than one or two glasses, it ruins my sleep. Yep, there's really good evidence for that. <laughs> and um, I was saying to you before that, with, amongst my friends, it's known as Beth's rule. That for years now, I won't drink after ten fifteen at night because I had this really. I, I got it down to a fine art because I was like, actually, what happens is you've you've had one a drink or two and you're feeling relaxed and you're having a lovely time out with your friends and you think I'm just going to have one more. But that one more that you have late at night, you don't actually get the benefits. You don't need it, mm. but it's so terrible for your night's sleep it's so so terrible and it really causes you to wake up too and you need the loo and you don't get rested sleep and you feel I think anxiety that next day anxiety after any alcohol is much worse than those menopausal years I have pulled my 10 15 rule down to nine o'clock now as the perimenopause <laughs> I love it well, I think we should all adopt that Beth's rule I'm, gonna... yeah. <laughs> I'm rolling that out yeah, no alcohol <laughs> after that. and then it's kind of mainly through your body hopefully before you go to sleep and hopefully it's not too bad yeah and obviously keeping your alcohol down to a minimum is uh, is also going to be helpful but what's life without the occasional glass of wine well you know I think more and more people are are kind of doing that kind of cost benefit analysis and going do you know what it is just not worth it for me anymore and and for some people it's just easier to do all or nothing and just be like I don't drink anymore and and fair play to them for that not quite there yet but (laughs) you never know never know anyway thank you so much Beth I think it's it's absolutely fascinating I'm I'm Totally fascinated by the microbiome stuff. Really interesting about all of those kind of risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Um, We don't want to scaremonger anyone, but kind of it is back to that thing of knowledge is power. Understand kind of, you know, what's going on for you. What's be, be proactive, I guess. And, you know, if you don't feel like you're getting anywhere with your GP, what what are people's options? I mean, they uh, second opinion at the practice opinion within the practice find out who it is in the practice that's got an interest in women's health I I really think the landscape is changing in general practice now we're all Mm. upskilling hugely you know so even if you went a year ago and felt that you were fobbed off please do try again because the chances are someone in that practice has has really done their education and is understanding the importance of offering really good choice about menopause care to women yeah and there's you know it's a whole nother podcast but we've we, there's a lot coming out about should we be offering a menopause check to over 40 women and on the nhs so watch this space this is not <laughs> definitely anywhere. definitely we'll come back and talk to to talk to us about that another yeah. time thank you Beth. thank you very much for inviting me back lovely to see you you've been listening to the middling along podcast do remember to subscribe to be notified when our next episode is live and why not visit the blog at www.middlingalong.com to sign up to my newsletter as well. I do hope you enjoyed listening today. If you did, I'd be really grateful if you would consider leaving a short review as that helps people find the podcast and helps get it noticed. Hope you can join us next time. Goodbye for now.